I'm Dottie Herman, CEO of Douglas Elliman. Been in the real estate business not too long after college. It's been the greatest joy of my life. I'm a risk taker. I think that most people fear the fact that people say, well, I told you you'd never do it. I told you you couldn't do it. I was not afraid of that. I'd rather have failed at things, but at least tried. And that people that never try anything, they never fail, but that's because they never try anything. Not that it doesn't bother me a little bit about what people say, but I don't let that stop me. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Dottie Herman is CEO of one of the country's largest and most well-known residential real estate companies, Douglas Elman Real Estate, the fourth largest residential real estate company nationwide. She acquired Douglas Elman for nearly $72 million in 2003 with her business partner, Howard Lorber of Nathan's Famous. Dottie has been named among the 100 most influential women in New York by Crane's New York Business. She talks about how surviving childhood trauma helped lead to her success as what Forbes magazine calls America's richest self-made woman in real estate. Dottie, I read your mom died suddenly when you were young. Would you tell us what happened? Yes. My mom had a friend that she grew up with, and that friend married someone who moved to the Midwest, and they were both skiers. So they built a ski house in Vermont, And so my mom hadn't seen her. They didn't have the Internet then. So they were pen pals, and she wrote, We built a ski house in Vermont, and that's kind of close to um, New York, so why don't you bring the kids, and we'll ski and spend the weekend together. So uh, that's what we did. Uh, My dad did not want to go. There was a bad snowstorm, and my mom said, Listen, I called the buses, and I'm taking the kids and going, so either you're coming or I'm going anyway. So he had no choice. We went. We had a wonderful, wonderful uh, four days in Vermont skiing, and my mom suffered from migraines. And when she got migraines, like, she really got sick and she would throw up. So we were on the parkway, and at that time there was a storm, and um, they had just come out with seatbelts, so the cars that weren't brand new didn't have them yet. And my mom asked my dad to get off the main highway so she could throw she had to throw up and she it skidded on the ice and the car flipped and um, she got thrown across the parkway and hit her head and was instantly dead and I got thrown across the parkway also I was right behind her Uh, however I didn't hit a rock but I was knocked out and um, my brother and sister and dad all lied on the parkway until someone found us I would just say that it was a blessing that I did not I was knocked out and when I woke up I found out my mom was dead and uh, a priest came to me and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but your your mom is dead. And he said, but, you know, here's an angel because now she's an angel and she's always going to watch you and watch over you. And so I've always felt I had an angel. And um, I also don't, I remember her alive. So I, you know, so, so I was glad that I wasn't, I wasn't conscious to see it. So that really shaped a lot of my life, I think. You said that experience motivated you. How so? Well, I was the oldest. And of course, you know, as most moms would have it, you know, I was in dancing lessons, swimming lessons, piano lessons, you know, I was in everything. And so um, all of a sudden I can't, you know, it's kind of really hard to, I was 10. So to internalize that, it just all of a sudden there was nobody there. There was nobody to tell me what to do. My dad was sick for much longer. He was in the hospital for a long time. So 
um, kind of had to grow up on my own and didn't really have the supervision that I might have had, that I would have had. My mom was strict. And so I kind of had made my own decisions. And I don't know that at 10, you really understand death or how you understand it. But I did understand that my mom was only 34 and she wasn't sick and that all of a sudden life changes and something can just change your life forever. So I've kind of always taken chances and kind of lived, I think, a lot differently than I would have if if, if I had a mom who was watching everything I did. And I, I, I learned that, you know, it could be gone in a day. So can you elaborate on that? Like how so did that change your attitude toward risk? Well, I'm a risk taker, and uh, but, but not a risk taker just for the sake of having risks or like not to go to, I don't gamble. I mean, I couldn't, I'm not, you know, I couldn't go lose thousands of dollars. I take a risk when I think that I have an 80% or more higher chance to succeed. I, I think that really what really been behind me that made me so successful, because I did take a lot of crazy risks, was that I would think, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And most of the times, you know, I'm not a surgeon that if I don't do the operation pop, pop, properly, someone's going to die. So I, I think that most people fear the fact that people say, well, I told you you'd never do it. I told you you couldn't do it. Or you see, you didn't get that job or you didn't. And so, look, I was not afraid of that because I would always say, listen, I, I'd rather have failed at things, but at least tried. And that people that never try anything, they never fail, but that's because they never try anything. So I, I wasn't afraid so much of, not that I don't, not that it doesn't bother me a little bit about what people say, but um, I don't let that stop me. And I think that so many people tried to give me really from what they thought was good advice, but it was good advice for them. Your mom had died and your dad was disabled for a while. Where did you get the strength to keep going? I don't I don't think you have much of a choice. I, I recently had a friend whose husband died when her son was 10. And so she asked me, you know, what was that like for you and how did you do it? I, um... I went to school. I mean, I was in the hospital three or four weeks, and then I went back to school. And I played, and I cried. I missed my mom. I was very, very fortunate. I grew up on Long Island in a very middle, nice middle-class area where um, the neighbors were all there. They'd make breakfast. If uh, I broke up with a boyfriend, I could knock at their house at 12 o'clock midnight and stop and say, oh, so-and-so just broke up with me. And they, they say, all right, come in and have a cup of coffee. I grew up with a lot of people and teachers who really did and helped our family, not for any monetary recognition or any, you know, just because they were just good people. And I never forgot that. You initially thought you wanted to be a financial planner, but then decided to pursue real estate. How did you figure that out? I didn't. It was quite by accident. I, um, I, I was going for my Series 7, and at the time, they had a certificate program that was like five years about, and it was certification in financial planning, which was offered by only two schools, Adelphi University and the School of Denver. So I was doing that at night, and I was doing real estate in the day, just not because I ever really wanted to do it, just somebody said, you know, you should try that, you know, and I needed a flexible schedule. And so it ended up that Merrill Lynch was coming into the real estate business. They decided to get multiple profit centers. So they were going to sell somebody a stock, then they had a bank, give them a mortgage, and then sell them a house. And so um, I had a professor uh, and 
out of Delphi that would make us go to all the financial planning meetings instead of his class because it was on the same day once a month. And I became active in financial planning. And when Merrill came into town, I went to them and I said, listen, I read the book that you have to know the top to know how to get ahead, but I would really be great. And I have real estate background and I have finance background. And um, that's how it started. How did you get the confidence to go to them and say that? I was young. I really was young and I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. I, I, and again, they didn't have the internet. So I just read in the book. And I think it was kind of easier then because, you know, I read in the book, you know, if you want to get someplace, you have to go to whoever makes those decisions. And so I found out where that person was and I kind of broke into the office. I really didn't have an appointment. I would have never gotten an appointment with the chairman of, of uh, Merrill. But I thought after I broke in and he, he just said, what are you doing here? And I told him and he thought it was kind of funny. And, you know, I worked my way up. I started with them when they were a new brand. I mean, they weren't a new brand, but they were a new brand to real estate. So it was like building that brand. Uh, people knew it for stock. And in, in many ways, if you didn't have a very expensive house, sometimes people thought, well, gee, you know, they wouldn't want me. So, um, and they were a great company in the fact that uh, they believed their people were their resources. So they spent, if, if they felt you had any potential, they spent a lot of time and money on growing you. And I, I got to travel all over the country and um, learn from some of the biggest people there. And so I was able, at a young age, I was in my 20s, to see real estate from a global aspect. And those days, and we're going back to like probably the late 80s, um, in those days, real estates weren't national. They were basically, you know, local, you know, you were in the civic association, your real estate was your name, and people kind of start kind of in a vacuum. So I, I, I was able to see that in a bigger way. And actually, um, I took their plan when they sold it, and their plan was great. It's just that the world wasn't ready. Sometimes you can have a great plan, but timing isn't right. And I implemented a lot of what I learned at Merrill in my own company. I read you became a mom at 19. How did that affect your career path? It was tough. It was really tough. But I was determined. I didn't have it easy, and I didn't have anyone really helping me. My mom um, wasn't alive, and so, you know, I moved very. I moved close to my dad so that he could help me out. But I was determined that I was never going to be—I had a— an ex-husband that really, you know, didn't really support me too well. So I said, I am never going to be hungry. I'm going to be so good at something that I am not going to ever need a man. I'm going to want to be with a man, but not because I need him for financial reasons. And I was that motivated to be that good at whatever it was I decided to do. I read you faced some obstacles in getting a loan for your business when you were starting out. And so I'm just wondering what happened and how you overcame that. Well, it's kind of a story that maybe when I when I talk about it or when I speak about entrepreneurship, and of course I I've done so much research, and if I didn't do it that way. I loved working for Merrill, loved it, and um, then one day by satellite we hear, you know, Merrill is going to sell its real estate division. They are going to put that money into foreign markets. So I was devastated, and um, it took about a year for them to actually sell it. So it was all over the papers and there was big ships and it said, don't stay on the sink, sinking ship. And people were trying to raid us and 
when they actually sold it and, um, you know, we went and it said, here we are, Prudential. And I love Merrill. And you know, they were an insurance company. It was just, I was devastated. So Prudential said, listen, we are, at that time I was in the Northeast region, running the Northeast region, stations on Long Island, but running the Northeast region for uh, Merrill. Um, Prudential said, you know, we don't want to have a national company. We think that business is local. So we're going to franchise regions. And uh, your job is to keep the company together and keep all the agents here because everyone was trying to raid us until we find a buyer for the region, the Northeast region. So I'm like, oh, gosh, I love this company. I'm not going to have a job. I was so upset because I did love working for them. And some agent that I just hired who was brand new, and I was probably 29 at the time, said, well, why don't you buy it? And I said, well, I have no money. That's why. They said, well, just say you do. Again, being young, I don't know that I would do that now, but I said, that's not a bad idea. So Prudential was evaluating all the businesses that they had. They were selling regions, and they used the Wharton study to value the businesses, and they looked at the last five years of the real estate business, and then they came up with some formulas, and so they had prices. And um, I wrote them a letter. I said I had venture capital money, and I'd like to be considered. They had sold Connecticut already. They sold Boston. Jersey, I think that they messed up so much that there wasn't too much left of it. The only thing that was really left was Long Island and uh, Queens. And so when they came to meet me and I had tried banks and the banks laughed in my face. And then I tried, well, you know, businessmen that I knew that had money. But when I met them and I said, well, why don't you buy it? And then they found out I really didn't have venture capital money. They said, well, we can't. Um, but I got all of the agents. We had 17, maybe 1,700 agents there. And I was the youngest behind me. And we were kind of a family. And they wanted to stick together. So they wrote a petition. And to make a long story short, it sounds hard to believe. I bought the company. And I probably, give or take, was about 33 by this point. No money down. No personal guarantees. I didn't have any money to guarantee. I borrowed about $9 million and about $2.2 million in working capital. And I told them, and that that's not enough working capital, so I'll probably have to come back to you in a year. And they said, well, we can't give you anymore. So that's what I did, and I bought the company. And I wasn't nervous because, really, I had nothing to lose. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. Technology and superstorms. Digital money. What's next for retail and fighting superbugs? Join me, Jennifer Strong, as I examine how science and technology are influencing our lives today, tomorrow, and beyond. The Future of Everything from The Wall Street Journal, Season 2. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Did you face any obstacles because you're a woman? You know, I... At that time, I, 
it was a different time. So men did treat women differently because it was acceptable then. But I've never, but I never found any in the companies I worked for. Yeah, there are men that kind of could have been a little out of place. But as far as women, there were not many women in those positions. But they, I've always, they were always wonderful. I've always had opportunities. But I made sure. Again, I read it in a book somewhere to go to the places and go to the things where I would know the people that made some of those decisions. You had a successful business on Long Island, and you could have retired, potentially, but you decided to move into the Manhattan market. How come? Well, actually, two things. I had my company, and I had expanded to the Hamptons now, and I think I had about, I don't want to say 35 or 36 offices in Long Island, Queens, and the Hamptons, and North Fork. And then I saw, I think at the time it was um, Sendant. Now they're Reology, but I think it was Sendant at the time. And I saw the beginning of public money coming into the real estate business. And I had mortgaged everything I had. I had loans out all over the place. And I... I thought about it, and I'm like, I, you know, I, I, I would have to tell sometimes the sales agents, don't cash the checks yet, but I'll be at the bank in one day. And so I thought, I don't know that I can compete with that. And that's when I talked to my attorney, and he introduced me to Howard Lorber, who is currently my partner. And to Howard, it was like no big deal. I mean, like, you know, I just said, listen, I, I, I need to get this to the next level, and I don't have the capital. And um, if you help me, I promise you, if you don't want to be in this business, because he really was, it was nothing to him at the time. I said, I promise you, give me a year and I'll pay you back. And um, he did it for me. And uh, we took the company, and maybe about a year and a half later, we were offered $30 million, which I don't believe my company was worth, but it was at the time that Sendon was really bidding up to buy. And I had offices in the same places they had Polo Bankers, so they wanted to combine them. And so that would have been, you know, um, probably for me, after taxes, a half of that or something like $7 million or $8 million. And you're talking 20-something years ago, and I really never had anything much. And I went to Howard, who would have made a quick, I mean, he would have made a quick dollar. So I said, I don't want to sell the company. And he looked at me. He said, are you crazy? I think you're crazy. He said, look how much money you can make. I said, no, but I, no one has ever built a company from Montauk to Manhattan. Robert Moses built bridges. I want to build a company. And at the time, there was no company that stretched. There were the Hampton companies, there were the Manhattan companies, and there were Long Island companies. So he looked at me and I have to say thank you to him because he said, uh, I think you're crazy, but if you want to do it, I'm with you. And that was that. What do women need to do to be successful in having their own business? I think first you have to be passionate about it. I also do think that I cared, and I, I don't say that, you know, just to say the word. I mean, I really cared because to build the company, and I had a big company. I mean, it's much, much bigger now, but it was always big. You can't do it alone. You can't. I don't care how good you are. If you don't have the right team and the right people behind you. So these people became part of me, part of the success of the company. I would involve them in everything. They knew everything that was going on. I would tell them the good and the bad. And even when I was working for Merrill and they said, you have to close some offices, I would go to those offices and say, listen, they want me to close it. I'm going to try to find a way around it. But I just want you to know, so if you stick with me or that you know ahead of time. So I was always, and I cared about them and they cared about me and they stuck with me through some very, very bad times. But at the same token, then I stuck with them when they had some bad times and it was like a family. 
How did you get through those tough times? I cried a lot, but I remember one of my mentors said, Dottie, never let them know where they can hit you. Because they'll never, if you have to get in your car and drive and just cry, do it. But don't let them see you cry. And I cried a lot. And then one day I said to my dad, who's no longer alive, I said, Dad, I, I don't know if I can do this. And he sent me an article from Ann Landers, and it said, never quit. And I never threw that out. How did you learn how to handle wealth when you didn't grow up with it? You know, everyone thinks, you know, they go, oh, I'm so wealthy, and I'm not going to say I had a bad life. But truthfully, I had loans all over the place. There were many years I didn't even make minimum wage. People don't realize that. You know, they look at whether it's a, a business person, a movie star, and they look at them when they're where they are already, they don't look at what it was like to get there. I, I, as I said to you before, I'm from Long Island. I love the beach. I, I couldn't go to the beach. I worked Sundays. I had loans all over. I took very little salary, and there were sometimes I couldn't take any. But I had a husband. I remarried, and I had a husband that, you know, helped me out. They were, they were tough, but I was determined. And my passion and my love, and I would say, okay, there's an obstacle. Okay, so it's not a stop. It's just like, how am I going to go around it? How am I going to find a way? And I, I've done that my whole life. But now I would imagine you're a bit more settled. And how do you, have you calibrated your lifestyle to? No, I, 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 well, look, if you see me from a distance, you're going to say, oh my God, that girl. I think I'm the same person that I was 30 years ago. I never forget all the people that helped me become who I am today. I truly love to see people grow. Um, so I'm, I, 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 I maybe too, too much of a mentor to sometimes there's times when I think, okay, you've tried enough and you should let it go. They're not going to do it. I got through the times because I loved what I did. And I also had all these people that depended on me. And so that's also a responsibility. If you think that you're going to be in any business, I don't care what it is, and not go through bad times, I, I think that's kind of not realistic. I heard you and your husband rarely see each other during the week. So I'm wondering, what advice do you have for other working couples? That's true. And that's, well, that's since the city. I mean, because initially, when I was just on Long Island, of course, I did. And my daughter was, uh, you know, when, when my daughter left for college. And then I didn't plan to be in the city. Initially, I planned to kind of oversee the company and leave the CEO that was currently running Douglas Elliman in place. And then Howard and I had a talk and Howard's like, no, you can't. You have to. So once I had to let him go, I realized just like when I opened up in the Hamptons and I opened up in the Hamptons de novo, basically, to really be part of something or real estate, you have to be part of that community. And I realized I had to be there. So I uh, rented an apartment. Initially, I, I since then obviously bought something, but I rented and I would go back on weekends. I would go back on weekends and come back mon Monday morning early. You know, I was married a long enough time and I think and I was lucky that I had a husband that allowed me to follow my dream. I just had a chat with somebody who works for me, and she said, I really want to do this, and my husband isn't going to want me to do it. And I said, well, he's really not going to have a choice because if you really want to do this career thing and you don't, you're going to resent him. And so either way, he'll lose. So he's better off letting you, and if, you know, and if it works, it works. But it does take its toll. It's really not easy. I, I think when I was younger, I thought, oh, you can have it all. You can have um, a great marriage. You can be a great mom. You can be a great businesswoman and still have some energy left. I, I think that 
that's really very difficult unless, you know, I didn't have the money for nannies and all that help at the time. But I think if you have to have a supportive family or spouse and you have to give and take, so like you have to kind of know, hey, my kids need a little more now. It's kind of a balancing act. And I, I talk to women all the time because especially women who don't have support systems, I think it's really tough for them. And I, I really want to help encourage them on. And it is a balancing act. And women are always feeling, I, I don't know any women that I that don't feel torn. So it's kind of, you know, one of those things that you just have to deal with and know when you have to give. And hopefully you have employees, employers, excuse me, that give you a little leeway so that when you need to do certain things, like I always tell anybody who works for me, when your kids are sick, fine, don't come in. If it's a snowstorm since my mom died in a car accident like that, do not drive. And um, if they're home for some reason and they're not sick, you can bring them in. What's your number one tip for people who are negotiating to buy a home? Know the market because if you, the especially the market we're in now, we're in a tight market and there's not a lot of inventory. So if you go out, with a broker, even if you, you know, and you trust that broker, but you haven't seen much and you don't know prices. And a broker says to you, listen, there's like a lot of offers and there's probably a full price offer and you might not really believe it. And I do the same thing for myself when I don't know more. So I think that you should, you know, especially with the internet, you can go on, you can see what's sold, you can take, you know, pinpoints and point out what areas and what prices they sold for. And I tell people you should go to open houses and see a lot of them and then look, ask the broker to tell you like, okay, how long have these houses been on the market or these apartments? And if they've been on the market like three days, well, that that's not an indication that they didn't sell. But if you see they're on six months, nine months, well, then you might say to yourself, they're probably priced wrong. And then it depends on how badly you want something. Because although I think everyone looks at real estate as an investment because it's expensive, when it's something that you're going to live in, it's also an emotional, something emotional. And so if something hits you and you really love it and you have to go a little above asking price, and that's the question you have to ask yourself. But I think the most, the best advice I give buyers is to know the market. So when the broker says it's good and you got to act quick, because if you wait long, it'll be gone. And I tell sellers, since most sellers think their house is always the best, you should go to houses that are on the market that are your competition and see what other buyers are going to be seeing when they see your house and then try to step back and be realistic and see how your house fits in. What's your outlook for the expensive real estate markets in New York and New Jersey, so the high-end market? There's a lot of talk about that. And of course, and I've, I've, I've read in the papers, uh, oh, gee, it slowed down. And here's what I think. And again, I'm going to give you an opinion. I don't think anyone has a, a green leaves. And I, 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 I do tarot cards, but I'm not going to do them here. I think that because the savvy investors really came out in New York well before everybody else. I would say um, on the radio sometimes, when everybody's buying, not that you shouldn't buy, but the deals happened before that. So I think a lot of people bought two or three years ago in the new developments, and they're closing now. I think that with all that's going on in the world, and it's kind of unstable, I think that a lot of, and don't forget, a lot of a lot of New Yorkers are buying them, but a lot of foreigners buy too. And I know because I live in a building that kind of is a mixed building, and um they're uncertain of what's going on in the, in the states, and I think when there's uncertainty, people kind of hold off. But I know we just had three big sales at 432 Park, so you know I don't think it's on fire, but I don't think it's bad. I think it's just moving at like a very like kind of nothing that you'd go crazy about newsworthy, but it's not bad. It's not good. It's just moving along. 
and everything is about price, but people still love New York, and I don't think that's going to change. If you could buy a home anywhere in the United States, where would you buy? That's hard, because I'd like to get out of New York once in a while, have a second place, but I would say, I, I think New York, and, and again, I didn't grow up here, and I didn't think that I would ever say this, because I'd always say, listen, I love the beach, and I think New York, the world could learn a lesson from New York. I think New York is, is a great place. People live on top of each other. There's every language and every economic part of life, and people are so different, and yet they make it work. And I think the world could learn from that. Time now for your secrets. I'm Dottie Herman. I'm CEO of Douglas Elliman. My money secrets. I think you need a good accountant. You have to look at what's important to you. People give advice, and it's again for them. Having good accountants and having good financial people and having a great team behind me. And of course, I'm a believer of real estate. I think I'll stick to what I know. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring women leaders and their success stories. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.